Hi, this is Pastor Emily McGinley from Urban Village Church, Hyde Park, Woodlawn. If you've been to UVC, you'll know that we seek to be three things, bold, inclusive, and relevant. We know that there are countless folks across the country and out there in podcast land like yourself seeking a message that will bring insight, hope, encouragement, and joy as we do this thing called faith. Please consider making a financial gift to help us with this work of inspiring, equipping, and sending out agents of gospel life and inclusive love. Just go to www.urbanvillagechurch.org forward slash give. Thanks for listening, and God bless. Our passage today comes from Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Listen for what God is saying to us. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the former heaven and the former earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne say, look, God's dwelling is here with humankind. He will dwell with them, and they will be his peoples. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will, there will be no mourning, crying, no pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making all things new. He also said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, All is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will freely give water from this life-giving spring. Those who emerge victorious will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my children. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for, were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. May God add a blessing to the hearing and living out of the scripture. Good morning again. I'm not quite sure if I uh, said my name, so in case I didn't, my name is Emily McKinley, and I am uh, the pastor here at Urban Village Church, Hyde Park Woodlawn. I'm so glad to worship with you this morning. Please join me in a word of prayer. God, we give you thanks for the beautiful vision that you cast before us. We ask, God, that as we um, hear what your word has to say to us this morning, that we might receive it, that you would clear away the clutter of our minds so that we might um, be attentive to what it is that you are trying to stir up, to conjure up within our imaginations for your purposes in this world. 
And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. When I was a kid, uh, we never had real butter in the house. We always had these yellow tubs of margarine. In fact, I can't uh, recall uh, knowingly tasting real butter until maybe I was in college, actually. Is anyone else like this? Did anyone grow up with margarine? All right, my people. Um, <laughs> so and, uh, maybe it was, uh, it, it, it could have been uh, my house uh, uh, a culture or maybe the part of the country that I grew up in. I'm from the Northwest. I'm not sure which is responsible, but there was this weird sort of like moral quality to the way that things like butter and salt were talked about. Um, like if you use those things, you are somehow morally suspect. And it's a weird thing. I still don't understand it entirely. Um, and I didn't actually understand the value of salt until I lived in Thailand for a year. And it was there that I learned it was good to have salt because it would help you retain water in the hot and humid climate. And I have to say, it was actually sort of mind-blowing for me to hear people talk about salt in a positive way. Um, anyway, like I said, I didn't really taste butter until college. And I didn't really appreciate uh, salt until after college. Um, and well, let's say there's never been a yellow tub in my refrigerator, and after years of being admonished for forgetting to put salt in things by my food-loving husband, I finally don't have to be reminded. <laughs> and I'm not saying that the city of God is full of butter and salt, but I'm not not saying that, <laughs> if you know what I'm saying. Uh, what I am saying is that, uh, it's, is, uh, is that there is something deeply unfalse unsubstituted and embarrassingly, delectably, deliciously, real fat rich about the kingdom of God. There is a reason why I think why there is a hymn with the lyrics, taste and see that the Lord is good. And no, I did not show up this morning to shame people who are trying to live heart-healthy lives. But, well, there's this thing about the passage for today. I think that, I think that we've been fed a sort of low-salt, fake-butter, substitute-sugar illust illustration of what God's city actually looks like. As we know by now, just about everything in the book of Revelation is symbolic. And this is mainly because how does one begin to imagine the unimaginable, right? How do you describe the indescribable? So John of Patmos is, is writing with as much approximation as he can to describe what a, a post-empire, post-oppression, and post-death world looks like. He talks about public spaces made of precious metals and stones, not because this is an episode of MTV Cribs. Um, does that still exist? I'm not sure. Um, he's saying that the streets are paved with gold because the things that were once only accessible and enjoyable by the wealthy and powerful are, are now available for the enjoyment of everyone. He talks about uh, the fading of way, away of death and mourning, of pain and crying, not because we will somehow return to some sort of untarnished, Enid-like consciousness. He talks about it because after all the horror, and the pain that was created when the Lamb opened the scroll of justice back in chapter 6, after the fiery red horse that steals peace and pits people against one another, after the horse rider death that kills by sword, famine, disease, and wild animals, after terrifying natural disasters, after the death song, of trumpets that unleash hail and fire mixed with blood, trumpet blast after trumpet blast, burning up a third of the earth, turning a third of the earth of the sea into blood, turning the rivers and springs into bitter, undrinkable waters, striking out a third of the sun, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. After all of that, and far too much more, 
The people, John says, the people, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. There will be no mourning, crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Folk focus on the streets paved with gold and the buildings made of precious metals and stones, but this, I think, this is the truest, most breathtaking aspect of the new Jerusalem. And I think it's important to fully understand this. It's necessary to comprehend the cost of the journey toward full justice and complete restoration, to understand that things will become much worse before they get any better, because dragon slaying is hard work. Dragons actually fight back. The city of God is not a low-salt, fake-butter, substitute-anything. It is the real deal, and it costs everyone in order to get there. The hope we find in Revelation is real, but it ain't cheap. In his book, Between the World and Me, the well-known writer and public intellectual and professional bubble burster, Ta-Nehisi Coates, speaks a hard realism to his son. This world is not, will not, ever be for you and me. All we have is the community of our people, he says. This is the source of our solace and joy in a world that would tell you repeatedly, in as many forms as possible, across generations, that your life doesn't matter. And with the arrival of his newest publication, We Were Eight Years in Power, Coates kind of digs into his realism without any self-consciousness. have had a hard time in some interviews expressing a sense of hope uh, that things will get better yes. in this country. Do you have any hope tonight for the people out there about how uh, we could be a better country, we had a better race relations, we have better politics? Mm. No, um, but... <laughs> But I'm, I'm not the person you should go to for that. You should go to your pastor. Your pastor provides you hope. Uh, your friends provide you hope. There, there are figures that exist in, this, in, in better times, the President of the United States provides you hope. Uh -huh. There are people who have that kind of moral you know, place in the world. That's not my job. That's somebody else's but job. But I'm not asking you to make up. I'm right. asking you if you personally see to, any chance I would, I would for change to. in America. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. But, but our, I mean, our, there's I would have to make up to actually answer that question in a satisfying way. What about the changing demographics of America? We have a constitutional system. Democracy itself, right. while not rubber, is plastic. Right. And as the demographics change, as white people become the minority right. in the country, which is coming, right. do you see a change for... Your, your question presumes that there is a static definition of whiteness and that this is the first time that there's been demographic change before. For oh, so instance, who gets to be white next to make sure that we outnumber black people is my Well, it's happened me. before. It's happened before. I mean, the Irish, when they came here, were not considered white. There's a period of time when Jews were not considered white, Italians were not considered white. Things change. In addition to that, in addition to the very definition of whiteness being malleable, uh, the ability to vote and access the political system is also a malleable thing also. So you might have a possibility of the demographics actually changing, but who has the ability to use those demographics in an electoral system might also change, too. I hope you're wrong. I hope I'm wrong, too. I hope Tom I'm Hossie, wrong, too. thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Hmm. Uh, hope is for your pastor, he says, to which I say, thanks a lot. <laughs> I mean, you can almost picture Stephen Colbert's priest watching the show and thinking, oh, great, you know? <laughs> But really, I have to say that I appreciate Ta-Nehisi Coates in this. Um, he and a growing number of folk like him are saying, I'm tired of low-salt, fake-butter, substitute-sugar hope. Give me something real. I'm not here for cheap hope or American optimism, and I am weary of suffering fools. He's right to make the demand. 
we're all actually right to make the demand. And this is why before we get to chapter 21, it's important to know what happens in chapters 6 through 20 to understand that the road to hope is paved with tears, pain, blood, sweat, and death. Because remember, from last week, evil is defeated by the blood of the lamb, the word of the witness, and courageous, loving sacrifice. It means we tell our authentic stories knowing that we could get hurt for it and telling them anyway. Beginning last Sunday evening, there was this explosion of a hashtag, Me Too, where women began to share stories of gender-based violence and sexual assault, um, uh, where, uh, and it was all kind of rooted in this story of a very powerful Hollywood producer, Harvey Weinstein, who had, over the course of 20, 25, 30 years, um, had, uh, had taken advantage of young women um, in their aspirations um, to become professional actresses um, and had ex sexually exploited them in a variety of different ways. And you begin to see not just kind of no-name people, right, but really well-known, Oscar-winning people talking about their own experiences. And almost every one of them said, I had no idea that other women were experiencing this. I just thought it was me. I just thought it was me. When we tell our authentic stories, they were all afraid of getting punished, and some of them were, right, professionally. When we tell our authentic stories, we know we could get hurt for it, but we tell them anyway, because that's how you slay dragons. We keep doing it, and we create space for others to do it in the face of everything that would punish us for it. Hope, real, unsubstituted, non-fake hope, is not cheap. And so the question then is this, are you willing to pay? Are you up to the task of telling and retelling authentic stories? To, are you willing to create space for others to tell their authentic stories even when it uh, um, rubs up against your story? In the face of systems and an economic culture that would set you up against order and people who have been groomed from generation to generation who will do, who have done everything possible to avoid the things that create pain and sorrow and death, it has been a pyramid scheme of pain since the days that Pharaoh was making pyramids on the pain of Israel, and even before that. Are you willing? Are you ready? Do you want to be made ready? Because if you're willing, if you're ready, if you want to be made ready, well then, let me tell you about a place called the New Jerusalem. The New Jerusalem isn't an amusement park or the best place you've ever been on vacation. It's, it's not one long church service, as I'm sure some of you maybe feared it might be. No, <laughs> even though John describes the entire city as a temple, he's not talking about church. He's talking about a place where people have paid the price of courageous authenticity and are committed to the project of beloved community. These are people who have sacrificed with love and have the texture in their souls to prove it. I recently heard an interview with Ruby Sales, a veteran of the civil rights movement and a theologian, a textured soul if there ever was one. She talked about her early life steeped in what she calls black folk religion, the religion of the people, not so much the steeple. And she talks about how when God didn't show up the way that she had taught coming down in a chariot from the sky to intervene at moments of such obvious right in the face of such obvious wrong. She switched from religion to reality. She became what she called a materialist. She only had interest in the things that could be stacked and measured. 
If it wasn't economics, if it wasn't race, then it didn't exist. She thought, she said, I, I thought black folks were religious fanatics. But then one day something changed. The defining moment for me happened when I was getting my locks washed and my locker's daughter came in one morning and she had been hustling all night and she had sores on her body and she was just in a state, drugs. So something said to me, ask her, where does it hurt? And I said, Shelly, where does it hurt? And just that simple question unleashed territory in her that she had never shared with her mother. And she talked about having been incested. She talked about all of the things that had happened to her as a child. And she literally shared the source of her pain. And I realized in that moment, listening to her and talking with her, that I needed a larger way to do this work mm. rather than a Marxist materialist analysis of the human condition. Mm. And also, I was riding down the road one day in Washington, D.C., after having been in a demonstration against the war in Iraq. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I started crying. And I realized that God had been with me even when I hadn't been with myself. And those moments made me really begin to seek to go back to really think deeply about black folk religion and to really want to develop in a very intentional way an inner life that had to do with how I lived in the world. Ruby Sales recognized that there was something more, something beyond the material, measurable efforts that she was engaged in. There was also soul work in what she needed to participate in, but she didn't realize it until she gave space for someone, for Shelley, to share her story. Where does it hurt? Painful, raw, grief-filled. An insight emerged. I needed a larger way to do this work. And then later, a sudden awareness of God's presence, another insight, God dwells with me. God has always dwelled with me. We can only do this if we allow each other space to feel and speak, to ask questions like, where does it hurt? And allow ourselves to really absorb and hear the answers. It's not enough to measure and sort, although those things are necessary. We must also transform and be transformed. There is soul work to be done in all of this. We need a larger way to do our work. Justice seeking is necessary. Service work is essential. But there is a mending of the soul, a restoration of the spirit. And this, I think, this is the heart. This is the heart of the New Jerusalem. It's not the material things. It's not the buildings made of precious stones and metals or the streets paved with gold. It's the, it's the world of hashtags where, things, where hashtags like Me Too and, and Black Lives Matter no more are, are existing. Tears wiped away and death no longer, sorrow gone, the former things passing away. 
It's the telling truth stories without shame or retribution. It's, it's the telling truth stories that bring healing and life and possibility and a sense of the largeness of who God is and who you are in God. The whole city is a temple because everything is whole and reflects God's wholeness. Finally, God's intentions, wholeness of life for all are realized. Does, not, does this not give you hope? It's likely that this would not convince ta Coates, but maybe one day he'll meet someone and be led to ask, where does it hurt? And maybe in hearing the response, he'll start looking for the larger thing and catch a glimpse of, of what might be possible. And maybe just seeing how costly this hope might be, he'll believe that the hope is actually real. Now, after our service today, we'll gather finally for our conversation to hear the answers a small group of dedicated leaders here at UVC have been diligently gathering from our community in response to one question, where does it hurt? How are we succeeding and how are we failing to be the kind of community where folks from diverse backgrounds can wrestle together and build authentic, courageous, anti-racist community? We have heard stories and shared stories and struggled faithfully, lovingly through it all, we will hear the testimony of the data and consider the challenges posed to build a community that more fully reflects God's vision of wholeness of life for all. We have, we are being called out and called in. A costly journey toward a real hope. When I think about the Bible, I'm struck how the story of God's relationship with humanity begins with a tree that bears one kind of fruit, a fruit that offers knowledge of good and evil, and how God tried to protect humanity from consuming it. And after Revelation 6 through 20, I understand. And now here, at the end of our passage for this morning, we come across another sort of tree, a tree of perpetual life and 12 fruits. We can only wonder what insights these fruits might offer, and I'd make a bet that knowledge of good and evil is no longer pertinent. Everything has changed, but one thing has remained the same from beginning to end, a vision of wholeness of life for all. When the question is asked, where does it hurt in the new Jerusalem, the response will be the same for everyone. Nowhere. And then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making all things new. He said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then he said to me, all is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will freely give water from the life-giving spring. To those who emerge victorious, they will inherit these things. I will be their God, and they will be my children. May it be so. Let us pray. God, for that new Jerusalem, help us remember that it only comes when we participate in your work in this world. Help us remember the glittering city and the mended hearts and the nowhere hurts so that as we apply ourselves day after day to the work of justice and service and looking for the ways that you are dwelling with us and among us, we won't lose sight of what we're working toward. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.